we can't have a generation of youth, 30% of them, who are addicted to nicotine and using e-cigarettes and potentially going on to other products that we know cause cancer, heart disease, and are incredibly harmful. Literally kill one out of three people who use them as indicated, as in the case with cigarettes. This is the James Cancer-Free World Podcast. I'm Steve Wartenberg, and today my guest is Ted Wagner. Ted is the director of the Center for Tobacco Research, and he's also the co-leader of the Cancer Control Program here at the James. Ted's research focuses on how and why people smoke and strategies to get them to stop. And also, he studies tobacco regulatory science, which is the use of research and clinical trials to help determine the federal regulations that govern the use of tobacco products. We're also going to talk about electronic cigarettes or e-cigs and vaping, topics that have been in the news a lot lately. And all of these things are very important because tobacco use is the leading cause of cancer and cancer-related deaths. Welcome, Ted, to the podcast. Hey, thank you for having me. Ted, let's start with a little bit of an overview on what you do about what is the Center for Tobacco Research and the Cancer Control Program and and why are they important for fighting cancer? Yeah, so uh, I just came to Ohio State in June um, and I was recruited here from Oklahoma where I had uh, helped start a center there. Um, as well, where I was recruiting faculty who, you know, a- examined certain things in terms of tobacco research in order to prove the health of the state of Oklahoma. Um, and so I was recruited here by Peter Shields uh, to do something very similar. Now, Ohio State was very different from Oklahoma in the sense that here there's already a robust tobacco research program with many outstanding faculty who are nationally and internationally known for tobacco. Including Um, Peter Shields, who we've had on the podcast before. Yes, yes, no, for sure. But what my goal and kind of what what I was brought here partially to do is to really um, bring everyone together um, on campus and to recruit additional tobacco researchers so that we can do even bigger things and also develop the number one tobacco research program in the country. You're actually building a physical center for the Center for Tobacco Research. Yeah, we are. Just north of campus, we're going to have a floor in a building where we house uh, seven faculty members, but then also a lab space. And we'll probably have the number one uh, human laboratory tobacco lab space in the country. We're actually going to have six negative pressure rooms. And by that, I mean it's rooms where we can bring people in to smoke uh, cigarettes, hookah, uh, uh, tobacco, um, e-cigarette cigars, and measure their behavior live as opposed to just asking them about their behavior. Wow, that's interesting. And that leads us into the next thing when you talk about tobacco research. I think that's a phrase and a whole area of study that a lot of people aren't familiar with. They sort of know, oh, yeah, well, tobacco uh, nicotine causes cancer, but there's so much more to that. Right. So sort of fill us in on sort of some of the, the major areas of study that, that you and the team you're building are going to address. Yeah. So, you know, when you think about tobacco research, there's, as you mentioned, a number of areas. So there's obviously how people actually use these products. So there's behavioral research where we see where do they use it? Why do they use it? What Do certain groups use it more than another group? Do certain groups use different products or use it in a different way than other groups? Um, this, this ties into the whole concept of addiction, right? Exactly. So, so we, why are some people, why are people addicted? Exactly. Why are people addicted? Why do they begin? Um, we also look at 
um, you know, the toxicological impacts of, of use. Um, so we look at not only at the product level, so what toxicants do the products themselves have, but how does that then affect the body? Um, we also have researchers and are recruiting more that look at how the tobacco industry markets and how we might be able to help uh, the FDA and state and local governments develop regulations to um, uh, reduce the impact of that marketing. And at the same time, uh, from our end, develop media campaigns um, to reduce uh, use, but to get the word out and really prevent people, uh, especially youth and non-smokers, from ever starting and also uh, adults uh, or youth who are already addicted, how, how to help them best quit. Um, so marketing, we also do something called impact analysis uh, where we uh, try to see, well, if we passed this regulation, could we model what we think the outcome would be for the state, for the nation, for the world? Um, and so, uh, you know, we're currently recruiting economists and epidemiologists who, who do this work. Um, and we have some folks here as well that do it. We also, in that group, we also were very lucky. I think at Ohio State, we're the only uh, uh, tobacco center that has two lawyers. So we have we have okay. two lawyers. Yeah, we have Micah Berman. We're very lucky. He's in the College of Law here, and Pat, Patty Zettler, who also is in the College of Law, and their their areas of focus are in tobacco uh, regulations and nicotine regulations, including pharmaceuticals. Um, so incredibly lucky to have have them because, as scientists, I can tell you, I can I can run a study that would show what will happen if we remove flavors from this tobacco product. Would people stop using it? Would they smoke it differently? Does it change you know the health effects of the product but i'm not the best person to talk to to say how do i then deliver and package this to a local government or state government or the fda so that they can actually use that to pass effective regulation so having those two is amazing right writing legis- legislation exactly that meets legal standards exactly you don't want me writing yeah. i can't even understand <laughs> it was um but they're amazing and very dedicated to it and they care a lot about it which so it's outstanding um that we have that and very unique to ohio state the the other area that um we we look at as well is in the area of cessation um, because there is a lot of focus on on regulation, but cessation is also important. We have a lot of people that are addicted to cigarettes, to smokeless tobacco, now to e-cigarettes, and um, oftentimes the the people that are left still using tobacco products are those who are the most underserved. Um, in our country and in our state. And so in terms of like socioeconomic, socioeconomic issues, exactly. Um, because, you know, they either have maybe some misconceptions about, you know, what it would be to quit. They don't have the money to quit. They don't, you know, they don't have the, the resources or they're constantly in situations and in environments surrounded by tobacco products and people using tobacco that it almost seems impossible to quit. So trying to figure out what are the best means to help them quit, to help them be successful quitting? Now, you just covered a lot of territory, which is great. That's a great overview of what you do, and it raises a lot of questions in my mind. The first one goes back to what you, you, you started with about addiction and behavior. So why is it, what is it about nicotine and cigarettes and other tobacco products that is just so addictive that just people cannot quit? 
Yeah, the the big addiction with obviously nicotine is an addictive chemical that um, you know uh, gets to your brain very rapidly um, and releases a lot of uh, chemicals that we enjoy, mostly dopamine. Um, and so, you know, cigarettes are incredibly addictive and very hard to stop using. Obviously. And when you take a puff of a cigarette, they have some really neat studies, and some of which we conduct here, that show that after you puff on a cigarette, within seven seconds, nicotine has reached your brain. Um, and it's and like a jolt of something good. It's a good. jolt, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's a stimulant that also so it'll wake you up, but at the same time, it's also making you feel really good. And so when do we, you know, when you start pairing that product and feeling good with you know when you're working and you're stressed out or you're hungry or you're driving and thinking you're essentially pairing a really good feeling caused by this product in all these situations of your life it starts becoming associated with all those situations and so whenever you're in that situation you think about it and you want to use it so we used to always ask people when we were uh, doing smoking cessation work a long time ago how often do you get craving for a cigarette in the shower wow Nobody gets a craving for a cigarette in the shower because you're not really – I mean, if you're smoking in the shower, we got uh, – you know, um, <laughs> but, um, but when they get in the car, they have a lot of cravings. When After they have a meal, a lot of cravings. When they're drinking, they have a lot of cravings. Um, when they're stressed, a lot of cravings. That will make you feel better. Um, and so you start seeing this learned pattern. So there's not only a, a chemical component of the nicotine um, – but also this learned behavior that you can control your dose of nicotine. You can control where you're using it and how you're using it. Um, you even start liking the smell. Also, I mean, you really want to get in the weeds on that too. People, you start surrounding yourself with people who also oh. smoke. You take smoke breaks. You can go outside. You get you. you yeah, know. there's a cluster of 10 or 12 people. Yeah. That's where they have to smoke. And yeah. And that. you start seeing some of these things with like network analysis where you see, you know, People who smoke are friends with other people who smoke. It makes sense. Like if you join CrossFit, I'm sure you, you start yeah. looking at your your friend group. You start having more people that are doing CrossFit. Yeah, if you do yoga, your friends are going to be yoga. If you're a cyclist, your friends are going to be cyclists. If you're a smoker, your friends will be smokers. And and I take it the, the tobacco industry knew of this and took advantage of this. And as I think history and research and work you've done has shown they uh, secretly – did things to make it cigarettes more addictive and get more people to smoke. Exactly right. Yeah. And so um, you, you see in the tobacco industry um, uh, documents, you see how chemically they were trying to improve on the products to make them more addictive. But it's also interesting, you know, a really clear example of how much they know um, comes with one of the first e-cigarettes that the tobacco industry ever ever um, started to bankroll, and it was blue. And it kind of gets at this social uh, aspect where they sold blue e-cigarettes in this plastic pack. It almost looked, The box almost looked like an iPhone, um, but you'd pull it out of the plastic pack, and it was like a cigarette box, and you could charge your e-cigarette in that box. But here's the cool-slash-interesting thing, whenever that pack was around someone else that also had it, it would light up and vibrate. 
so that you knew there was another e-cigarette user of that brand, like Blue. It had and, some sort of GPS tracker or yep, something that it, could identify another. Correct. And you could wow. hold it. It had Bluetooth technology. And you could <laughs> hold What they wanted people to do was if they were in, like in a club, and that's why it lit up, you could hold up your pack <laughs> of your Blue and like so you could find each other. And, and so that shows you they understand your peer group and finding others that are like you. Um, is really important to sustain behavior, right? You don't want to, you know, if you're trying to quit, you don't want to still go out for that cigarette break every day with all your friends, right? That's probably not putting yourself in the best situation. You know, if you're quitting. Temptation. Yeah, temptation. And so you really, we know social support's important. It's important to help you start. It's important to help you stop. How do you get people to to stop? I mean, with something that's so addictive, what are some of the, the techniques and strategies that, that research has shown works? Yeah. Um, so there are effective strategies out there. I, I always start this off by giving people kind of the context for it. So each year, approximately 70 to 80% of people report that they want to quit smoking. So I have smokers, 70 to 80% want to quit. About 50%, about half of that you know group, will actually make a quit attempt. But when you actually look at who quits for a period of longer than six months— it's less than 7%. Wow. So, Plus, so yeah, it just shows how addictive it is. It's incredibly addictive and it's, you know, and it's, it's everywhere. So, um, you know, it, it, it's hard not to see it. Um, and so things that can make that a little bit easier and you'll actually double your chances of quitting is by using, using the gold standard, which is counseling and then combination nicotine replacement therapies. So usually like a patch, nicotine patch, and nicotine gum or nicotine lozenge. That's going to be your, you know, first line best bet. You can also, people are looking into the combination, not only of counseling and nicotine replacement therapy, but also adding onto that uh, um, uh, smoking cessation medications like Chantix. So adding something like Chantix on, onto that as well um, so that you essentially have these full combinations of of different treatments to try to cover all aspects of what's going on. Um, uh, so the counseling, you know, to work on um, uh, reason situations, barriers to quitting. Your you still get your nicotine fix, but not in as much of an addictive way with the patch and the and lozenge. Then, and then gradually you lower the amount. Of and nicotine. then gradually you lower the amount. And then also your your cessation medications to impact you know different neurotransmitters in the brain to make you not crave it as much. Some people do want you off of nicotine forever, right? And that's up for debate, um, even in you know especially in in the research world. Um, I'm someone who's more of a harm reductionist that thinks that I. I'm okay with you being on nicotine for the rest of your life as long as it's delivered through in a, a very, patch through a patch and not through a uh, cigarette inhaling smoke. Into, yeah, yeah, and you know we get to the point where you know we talk about uh, a lot in tobacco research about types of nicotine delivery. So a cleaner versus a really dirty fashion. Cigarettes are incredibly dirty. I mean, I mean you're literally. But if you smoked lettuce, that would be bad for you too. You'd be inhaling a lot of carcinogens as well. Um, so cigarettes are the dirtiest. So anything combustible, cigarettes, cigars. It's that heat and smoke that you inhale. Exactly. And, and cigarettes have all those other bad chemicals in them. Correct. And then you look at the, that level of toxin exposure is reduced with products like even even chewing tobacco. It's a little lower because you're not at least inhaling stuff, but you're still going to get cancer, <laughs> uh, yeah. head and neck cancer. And, yeah. um, 
Um, but then you have products like e-cigarettes, which toxicologically speaking has uh, exposes the users to lower levels of those harmful toxicants. But then the best one would be nicotine replacement therapy, which exposes you to none. Now, before we get into e-cigarettes, yeah. one more quick question before we take a break. You're a former smoker, which I found interesting. How did, yeah. how, and when did you quit? So I smoked for about seven years. I actually smoked a lot. I smoked a pack and a half a day of Marlboro Lights. Um, now I'm guessing from your age, perhaps is that high school, college, so those seven years? It was, yeah, it was college yeah. and into uh, a couple of years, uh, uh, post-college and into graduate and school. And a pack and a half a day when you're stre- stress of academia oh, and yeah. grad school. Okay. Yeah, no, and so and so I I have a lot of firsthand knowledge of, of what it feels like <laughs> and how much you enjoy it and how hard it is to quit. Now, I, I was in graduate school making $9,000 a year, so I didn't and I have didn't, a lot of money. I didn't have it. a lot of money for. Nobody was giving me Chantix yeah. or anything yeah. like that. So then I think all the money you save from not smoking. Oh man, you I know. Apply to Chantix exactly. <laughs> and so uh, uh, it was actually my friend uh, who we were outside smoking cigarettes uh, in between going to one of our classes, and she was like, "Hey Ted, do you want to set a quit date?" And it's funny, right? Because this is this is your social support. I wasn't thinking about quitting, but she said it so. Without expectation, um, and, and that's important for therapy too later on. But you know, she said, "You want to set a quit date with me?" I was like, "Well, my wife has kind of told me I could keep." So she knows understands <laughs> how stressful graduate school is and everything. But yeah, I mean, when are we thinking? And she was like, "October twenty fourth. So it was October twenty fourth, two thousand four. The end of that story is, I quit. She started she, up two weeks later and didn't oh, tell gonna, me, oh, which was great. No. I found out actually like three months later. She's she's quit now. Okay, uh, but uh, <laughs> uh, but I was glad she didn't tell me because um, uh, it the first week is tough, but it's amazing and it, it and the addiction is strong enough that it's amazing. You know, even up to like three months, six months later, you'd see someone smoking. And you're like, oh, man, I could just run up to them and just suck the smoke out of their mouth. I know that sounds creepy and weird, but it is one of the – I mean the addiction's strong. But by about a year, people can smoke right in front of you, and it, it doesn't really even bug you all that much. And now when I see people smoking, it's not like I'm sitting there going, oh, I wonder what that would be like. Um, it doesn't – you almost start feeling like a never smoker before. Wow, and congratulations. We're, you're, you just passed the 15-year mark. Right? Exactly. Okay. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back with Ted, and we're going to dive down a little deeper into e-cigs and vaping and what Ted and others are, are discovering as we start to research these new um, nicotine inhalation devices. A revolution in lung cancer treatment is happening at the James. We're proving lung cancer isn't solely defined by location and stage, but rather the individual molecules and genes that drive it. Simply put, there is no routine lung cancer. That's why our world-renowned specialists put their expertise towards treating one particular lung cancer, yours. At The James, we go beyond the routine to prevent, detect, treat, and cure your lung cancer. To learn more, call 1-800-293-5066. We're back. And today our guest is Ted Wagner, the director of the Center for Tobacco Research and the co-leader of the Cancer Control Program here at the James. And we're going to talk about e-cigs and vaping now. And Ted, sort of give us a little bit of an overview on on the rise and popularity of them and, and what they were at least marketed to to do and, and what they really do and what you and other scientists and researchers are, are finding out about them. 
Yeah, so I mean, the history of e-cigs is is kind of interesting. Um, the the probably the quickest way to kind of explain it is they really started to come into the national picture around 2009, 2010. They were around before that, but around 2009, 2010, you really started uh, seeing um, people use it and also researchers looking at it. And so early e-cigarettes were these products that looked like cigarettes, um, and we call those sigalikes. Sigalikes. Um, sigalikes. You called them that or the industry did? Uh, the researchers called okay. them sigalikes. Sigalikes, okay. Yep. And, um, and sometimes they're also called first-generation e-cigarettes. Um, what was interesting about those is they looked like a cigarette, and you saw that even when they didn't have nicotine in them, people would still reduce the amount of cigarettes that they would smoke for a period of time, about a week. But then over time, people just kind of went right back to smoking. There was a few people that could you know, really quit smoking using them, but not too many. Because that's how they were introduced as a Correct. smoking cessation device. They're marketed as a healthy alternative that would help you quit. Yep. So from a regulatory standpoint, they, w- they wouldn't call them a smoking cessation device. What they would call them is what you said secondly, a smoking alternative. So that was how they got around uh, regulatory statutes by saying that they weren't a smoking – this is not a cessation device. Oh, because that's regulated. That's regulated. Okay. Uh, So that's – one side of FDA regulates – medical pharmaceutical devices for smoking cessation with, you know, um, uh, uh, essentially making a health claim. This was regulated by another part of FDA called the Center for Tobacco Products, which regulates consumer products that are recreational. And so they would just say as an alternative to smoking. Um, uh, But, you know, there was a lot of subtext that, you know, this could help you quit. Um, uh, this is safer for you. Um, uh, you know, it's better than nicotine replacement products, those sorts of things. So those first Sigalike products that came out were really neat in what they were trying to do. Um, but when you actually looked at why people weren't using them for very long, when we actually tested it, we saw that they didn't deliver nicotine very well. They actually delivered nicotine, uh, worse than a patch. Um, which uh, nicotine patch is very slow nicotine delivery. So, and if, people were craving nicotine. They were craving nicotine. And weren't getting it. Yeah, and so if you could kind of picture almost like a, a a graph in your head, if I were to smoke a cigarette at that kind of time zero, with and I took ten puffs within five minutes, that that line is going to spike way up. It's going to go really high to what we could say is fifteen nanograms per milliliter of nicotine, so nicotine in your blood. When you look at what this e-cigarette was doing, it was getting to about 1.5 in about 19 minutes. So really, really slow. So Less a, nicotine, slower delivery. Slower delivery. And when you talk about drugs, if you want something that's addictive, you want it to be high amounts yeah. of the drug and quick delivery. So the industry, I'm sure, is going to find a way Correct. to deliver faster, stronger, Exactly. <laughs> yeah, bigger, better, stronger, better. Yeah. <laughs> um, and and what's also important to note, the tobacco industry, you know, you think of like Altria, um, you know, R.J. Reynolds, those, they were actually not involved in the e-cigarette market at this at time. At the beginning, yeah. I yep. do remember that. Yeah. But na- then they saw. Then they saw, right. What, and, yeah, the and, p- profit potential. Exactly. And so what you saw were hobbyists, you know, people who were trying to quit smoking and were using these Sigalike products but not finding them very satisfying. And so what they started to do, they realized, man – 
I look at this thing I pulled apart. It's a battery with a heating element, and then it's just like a cup that essentially holds the nicotine against that heating element. And the you know there's a wicking material in there to absorb the nicotine that you kind of wrap the heating element around. So there's really only a few parts. Could I make this myself? Uh, and they did. Okay. <laughs> and so and so you saw at the same time while there was a few companies out there, you know, the the big one was Joytech at the time who was making these second generation e-cigarettes. These are the ones that we now see not too often but were like the bigger pen or flashlight looking type devices. Um they were making one of those, but we saw hobbyists also making those. So essentially taking flashlight parts and creating their own e-cigarette, what we call a mechanical e-cigarette. Um, so it didn't have like a computer chip or anything. And it. it was just mechanical. We put batteries and some wire um, in a, a you know canthal wire around like a cotton wick and douse that thing in, in uh, nicotine liquid. And you can push a button and make the electrical connection. It will make that wire glow and heat up. Wow. And you can vape. <laughs> um, wow. So... Um, those products did a little bit better of a job of delivering nicotine, and people were like, now this one is – this is a little better. And when we looked at the nicotine delivery data, again, we're always like two, three years behind, um, and it was actually one of our studies that looked at this first. We saw that it got about halfway to the nicotine delivery of a cigarette. So instead of reaching you know, 15 uh, nanograms per mil in five minutes, you're getting about – Eight nanograms per mil in five minutes compared to one point five to first generation. Exactly. So you're you're getting they're getting closer. They're getting closer, and um, and people were you know obviously you got people that tinker and they're they keep looking. And they're like, well, at the end of the day, the way I seem it looks as though we get more a more satisfying product because obviously they're not running pharmacokinetic studies, you know, um, in their vape shop. They're like, I need to increase the power on this. It's like Tim, the tool man, Taylor from like home yeah. improvement. You know what I mean? It's like, how can I get this to have more power? So they started using larger batteries and then they started using thicker coil wire that you would wrap around that wick. I feel so, like we're heading toward people hurting themselves. Yes, like, you're exactly things, right. Things blow, catching fire and blowing up. That's exactly where we're going. Yeah. And so they, these people weren't all electrical, electrical engineers. <laughs> and so they started having batteries that had incredibly high voltages. And then this wire had very low resistance. So you create really, really high wattage or high power. Well, high wattage, high power means more heat. More heat means when you pour e-liquid over that hot coil, you get more vapor, more aerosol, which each one of those aerosol particles is also has nicotine laced to it. So you start getting more and more nicotine. And so we have done studies now that show that those third-generation products with, uh, uh, um, with the more power – delivered cigarette-like levels of nicotine delivery. And actually, we're getting up around 17 uh, uh, nanograms per milliliter in nicotine. And specifically, what a lot of those papers showed is there's a direct relationship between the power of your device, the wattage of your device, meaning your wattage, and the nicotine delivery. So when it comes to e-cigarettes, the key factors for nicotine delivery are your wattage of your device and the nicotine concentration of your e-liquid. Those are two of the most important factors. There's other factors too, like 
the air hole. So when we were in vape shops in uh, Oklahoma, um, we would see there'd be huge drill presses at the vape shop. And I'm like, what the heck? What What's a drill press doing here? And like, oh, man, you want to get huge clouds? Yeah, you do that. You got to bore a hole through your through your uh, uh, your tank, so you open up airflow. More airflow you can create, the more aerosol it creates, and it also makes it easier for you to inhale. So the way they came from the manufacturer didn't have a big enough hole. So if they had to drill them Correct. bigger to get it in faster. Correct. And you had people who were making their own devices still with big mag light flashlights now, and we called those products mechanical mods. Um, um, they modified them and they're mechanical. So there's no, there's no computer chip in there. So it's unregulated. They can make that thing have as much power as they want, um, uh, and deliver as much nicotine as they want. So now they were initially, um, marketed as, as a healthier alternative to cigarettes. What are you finding out? Are they? And particularly recently, we're seeing people who have, have died. Right. So what is going on? Are they a healthier alternative? So what's, what's interesting is there, so no e-cigarette is safe. Um, and, and health is different from toxicological exposure. So no one knows really the long-term health implications of e-cigarettes because that really does take some time. It would take, you know, 10, 20, even 30 years to really know the true long-term health implications. So what we look at to determine, uh, to give ourselves the best guess as to what the health implications might be, we have to look at proxy markers of health. So we look at certain biomarkers or DNA damage um, and mutations and um, look at certain levels of, of harmful carcinogenic constituents in your blood, looking at those sorts of things and seeing are those more or less when you use e-cigarettes versus when you smoke cigarettes. And then we try to extrapolate based on that. Um, and so what the research shows us is that for the most part, under most circumstances, e-cigarettes deliver far fewer harmful toxicants than cigarettes. Um, And that is simply because there's no burning. There's heating. There's no burning. So there's no carbon monoxide present. Um, And a lot of these uh, combustion chemicals that, uh, uh, that are generated out of cigarettes aren't there with e-cigarettes. However, remember I was telling you more and more power gave you more and more nicotine, but more and more power gives you more and more heat. At what point does heat become burning? So what they found out, these special situations is, with certain wattages, when you start getting higher and higher, you started to heat the e-liquid up hotter and hotter, and you start producing more and more of these bad chemicals. So you're approximating a cigarette in terms of the heat that's... So you're getting closer and closer. So you know there's some of these studies that showed essentially formaldehyde levels in some e-cigarette aerosol... Um, that was higher than even what you would get in cigarette smoke. Um, and a lot of that is from the flavors. So the flavors, when they break down through thermal degradation, they actually start producing high levels of formaldehyde at higher heating temperatures. So And formaldehyde, when is, heated up, has toxins in it that... Formaldehyde on its own is, it, is carcinogenic. Okay. Yeah. So that's why there's been all this debate lately about um, banning flavored... That's one of the reasons. Um, uh, The other is that flavors do not only appear to be attractive for adults, right? We all like stuff that tastes good, but 
kids also yeah. like things that taste good. Right. And, you know, when you do look back at tobacco industry documents, you see, I mean, what they, they looked at what are the products that are the easiest for kids to start. They're products that are flavored, have lower nicotine, and also are, have the nicotine's really palatable. And how they make that palatable is by changing some of the chemistry, specifically lowering the pH of, of the e-liquid. So you're getting these 12, 14-year-olds hooked on nicotine, addicted Correct. to nicotine, with, and, 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 and until they stop, they're going to crave it and need it and get it either on e-cigs or perhaps actual cigarettes. Correct. And so, um, you know, what's, what's really interesting, because as I was talking there about the evolution of e-cigarettes from Sigalikes to these pen styles, to these big mechanical mods, which by the way, the first time I ever went to a vape shop, the guy said, I want to show you something. We call these the AK-47 of e-cigarettes. <laughs> and I was like, what? And he was like, yeah, it's all mechanical. We build these. There's no computer chips. So you could throw it in the dirt, bury it, throw it in the water, pull it up 10 years later, and it will still fire, just like an AK-47, and delivers awesome nicotine. So those were the third generation. But then companies started creating these very high-power devices. But then we saw this very quick shift in the market that's been happening over the last three years, and that's been with products like Juul which are called pod mod or pod style devices. And they move away from having high power and instead have high levels of nicotine. So remember I said you can, you can get good nicotine delivery with either high power or high nicotine concentration. What they're doing is they have a device that has very low power but very high nicotine concentrations in the e-liquid. Now the next question is, well, why didn't they do that from the start? The reason is the e-cigarette industry didn't know how you can make high doses of nicotine palatable, palatable because nicotine is, is, a, is an ingredient that's very harsh to taste and it burns your mouth. So what they did uh, with these products like Juul specifically is they lowered the pH of the e-liquid of the nicotine by adding acid to the nicotine. And what that does is it creates, a, instead of having freebase nicotine, you now have what's called a nicotine salt. The nicotine salt is not as bioavailable. And so it doesn't, if, if you just took straight nicotine, freebase nicotine, and inhaled it, it would, most of it would absorb in your mouth, and that causes burning, a burning cessation. So people don't like that. But by changing the nicotine into a nicotine salt, they've lowered the pH, and now the nicotine's not as available, so it bypasses the mouth, and it doesn't burn, but it's a very high dose of nicotine that then goes right to your lung. And so now you have, by changing the form of nicotine, by making it much, which makes it incredibly palatable, you can now, instead of having giving people three milligrams per milliliter of nicotine, or you know, which is essentially 0.3% nicotine, you can now have products that are 6% nicotine or 60 milligrams per milliliter of nicotine. So we're going from 0.3 to 6.0. Correct. And so so now you can get a really good buzz without the throat hit, without having it burn. It's kind of like if they could find a way to give you grain alcohol, but but have it go down as easy as like a wine cooler. Does that make sense? Is there any negative side effects from this new technique to get the nicotine content higher? The negative is you now have a product that's incredibly addictive 
to first-time users and very palatable. So someone who is not, uh, who is naive to nicotine can inhale it and not have those kind of first, ooh, my mouth is burning. You know, yeah. It's very easy for them to continue, um, whereas in the past it wasn't. E- all earlier e-cigarettes used free-based nicotine, and so it would burn. And So, so instead, ha- instead of having to build up a, a, a liking for nicotine, exactly. it happens right away. It happens right away. They do get the buzz. We do see in our yeah. studies with youth that they say, oh, man, I do get a buzz like about five, ten seconds later. Again, it's because of when nicotine actually reaches the brain. Um, but they report liking the buzz, um, which makes sense. A lot of people like the buzz. Um, it's usually the harshness that people didn't like in the past. But this now uh, has created a whole class of products that essentially aren't harsh to use um, but deliver psychoactive addictive doses of nicotine. Now, the catch-22 with that is it's also a product that it's likely easier for smokers to switch, to quit smoking and go to this product because it's more palatable for them, delivers nicotine better than these other products, easier to use. Um, and um, uh, so you have a product that's more addictive for youth, but it's more addictive for adults. Um, now, the other part of this is there's addiction, but then there's also toxicology. When you look at products like Juul and nicotine salts, and remember why I said earlier, increased power with e-cigarettes so that increased heating is what create a lot of those harmful constituents now you have a product that doesn't have or require as much power and to give you an idea the power of a jewel is nine times less than what you had with these big third generation box mods so you know you're only at like seven watts whereas in these others you were having 60 70 the highest wattage ever saw on the device was 250 watts. So the heat-related bad effects are reduced. Are significantly reduced. Which and, is a good thing. Which is a great thing. And you also see that people, once you re- increase the amount of nicotine that's in that e-liquid, they don't have to take as many puffs on it in order to get the nicotine fix that they want. Why is that important? It's important because nicotine isn't the harmful thing in e-cigarettes, it's not the harmful thing in cigarettes. It's all the other stuff that's in there in the burning that makes it harmful. E-cigarettes, obviously, there's no burning, but all the other constituents that are in e-cigarettes, the flavorants, the other chem- – like vegetable glycerin and propylene glycol are in there. Those, when you heat them up, do create things that are toxicants. So the goal should be to have you take as few a number of puffs as you need to get your nicotine – um, but not anymore because the other chemicals in there are what are going to hurt you and likely potentially down the road cause cancer or something else or potentially heart disease. Um, and so uh, these products, by having high doses of nicotine uh, per puff, means you don't have to inhale <laughs> as, okay. as many. So it's a real dilemma um, with researchers when you have a product, for example, like Juul or PodMod that – delivers is very addictive which means it's easier for smokers to switch to and quit smoking also has lower toxicants compared to other e-cigarettes and definitely compared to cigarettes but at the same time is addicting a significant number of youth i mean now it's up to nearly 30 percent of youth are using e-cigarettes and that's that's crazy and that's ridiculous and kind of unheard of we're going in the wrong direction so ted overall are e-cigs a, a step forward, a benefit, or do the the negative impact, particularly all the uh, the younger people doing them, 
is is that a bad thing? Yeah, obviously it's a bad thing. I um, e-cigarettes right now, if we can't rein in youth use, I think it, it, it's a it's a negative, um, especially since we're not seeing as high of numbers of adults as we thought we would quitting cigarettes and moving over to e-cigarettes. Most adult cigarette smokers who use e-cigarettes continue to use cigarettes, um, most dual use in that sense. Um, so it's not having the intended consequence that we of were hoping. reducing smoking, and it's having the unintended consequence of more younger people taking up nicotine. Correct. And so that's a big thing about our research and what we're focusing on is, is there ways where products like e-cigarettes that we can create regulations that would protect youth while still leaving them there for adults because they do have the potential to help and have helped a significant number of smokers quit smoking. You know, there there are a significant number of smokers that have quit smoking with e-cigarettes. Um, and again, the toxicology studies show reduced exposure to these harmful chemicals. However, we can't have a generation of youth 30% of them who are addicted to nicotine and using e-cigarettes then potentially going on to other products that we know cause cancer, heart disease, and are incredibly harmful. Literally kill one out of three people who use them as indicated, as in the case with cigarettes. Well, that's a fascinating dilemma that you and others in this field are going to be working on for years to come. Yeah, no, for sure. Well, thank you for, for filling us in on all these important topics and the importance and how hard it is to, to stop smoking and all the research that goes into it. Thank you. This podcast is brought to you by the Ohio State University Comprehensive Cancer Center, Arthur D. James Cancer Hospital, and Richard J. Solov Research Institute. For more information, check out our website, cancer.osu.edu.